Thank you. Thank you, Leon. Uh, you've been very kind to me. Uh, it's nice to be here in Australia. I've never been here. And uh, it's nice to see some of my old friends here. And today I'm going to talk about my life as a writer and to some extent science fiction writer, but I think of myself for really just as a writer. And I'm pretty well positioned to make this talk because I just finished the third revision of my autobiography. I've been working on it for the last couple of years, so everything is fairly clear in my mind. Uh, I started reading science fiction when I was about 12 or 13. Sometimes people call that the golden age of science fiction, and it's not so much a period in the outer world, it's a period in the inner world. For each of us, the golden age is when we're maybe 13, 14. And some of the appeal at that point is, uh, well, one thing that's often the case in science fiction is that the, the hero is not a particularly educated or sophisticated person, but somehow manages to have these incredible adventures and save the world, which is sort of, it's sort of a position that you're in when you're a young teenager. And even the kind of people who keep reading science fiction for the rest of their lives, uh, they're people who like the idea of leaving this world and going to some other more interesting reality. And uh, the other thing that I got interested in early on was the beatnik writers. When I was in high school, I read Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, and uh, I was very taken with uh, their style and uh, also the sort of worldview, the anti-authoritarian worldview of sort of turning your back on consensus reality and uh, not taking for granted what the media or the government or your teachers tell you and seeking out your own truth, seeking out your own pathway to enlightenment. And uh, I went to college, and I wasn't doing very much writing during college. But uh, I still I wanted to write something. And I had these sort of two desires to write beatnik novel and to write science fiction. And then... Uh, when I was, oh, I guess around, this would have been around, I was about 32, I guess, when I wrote my first novel. And it was a novel called Space Time Donuts. And it had that quality of being, it's sort of a first, it's sort of a, a close third person narrative, it's, but it's focused very closely on one person and talking about the adventures he has, and he's uh, somewhat countercultural. He falls in with a group of people that are, well, now we would call them cyberpunks, although uh, the word didn't really exist then. And uh, but they found a way to link their minds into a, a giant computer that was running Earth, and to provide the thing with ideas. It was 
there was this feeling I had at that point, which uh, uh, to some extent I still have, that even if you could build the you know very good artificial intelligence, there's always the feeling that there's something that that we can do that would not be very easy to emulate, and that uh, even if you had a extremely powerful computer, it might profit by plugging into us. And uh, in that novel, uh, I sent it off to a couple of publishers, and uh, it was in some ways the first cyberpunk novel, but it was the time for cyberpunk wasn't there yet, and nobody wanted to publish it. They didn't really see its virtues. But uh, I was able to serialize it. There's a magazine called Unearth that was devoted, it didn't last very long, but it was devoted to just publishing authors that had never been published. Which, uh, And they paid me, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars. And they, were, they serialized that novel. Well, they serialized it in three parts, uh, but they only managed to get the first two parts out uh, before they, they had to fold. Now, um, I still... At that point, writing a novel seemed like sort of an impossible thing to do. I was, I was surprised that I'd been able to do it at all, and I wasn't sure I could do it again. Uh, and then uh, Sylvia and I, my wife and I, were living in upstate New York, and I got a grant to go to Heidelberg. Uh, to There was this thing called the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, and Germany always needs friends. And uh, so they had this nice policy. They would pay uh, scholars, as long as you were under 40, I think, from another country to come there and stay there for a year or possibly two years. And uh, I got one of these grants, and I was going to do research. And I should mention, uh, at the, along the way, I had gotten a, a bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in mathematics, and I was working as a mathematics professor. That was my day job. And uh, in some ways, being a science fiction writer or a writer at all, uh, in some ways, mathematics is a useful preparation for that. In that, in mathematics, you often take the idea of taking some set of axioms and seeing what follows from that logically. And in some respects, a science fiction novel is like that. You take some altered situation and say, what's going to ensue in this world if we assume that such and such is, is given? What's going to happen? Anyway, um, I got a, a, this Humboldt Foundation grant to go to Heidelberg, for, uh, and I ended up staying there two years. And I was doing research on a, <coughs> a problem having to do with sizes of infinity. And there's a, a famous theorem proved by George Cantor in, I think, 1885, that there's actually two different levels of infinity. Uh, ordinarily, this sort of, if people have to think about it at all, they would naturally assume there's just one kind of infinity. You get to infinity and that's that. And Cantor, with a, a very subtle and clever argument, was able to show that there could be different sizes of infinity. And size in the sense that if you have this one collection that's smaller in this larger collection, there's no way you can match this one up one-to-one -one with all the members of this one. And the smaller set is the set of natural numbers, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all those numbers. 
and the larger set could be regarded as all the, the set of all the points in uh, an interval of space. Say, say the, the, the number line between 0 and 1, if, if we think of that as being endlessly continuous. And uh, Cantor was able to show that there's no way to completely pair those up. It's an interesting argument. And some people have trouble understanding that argument. Even now, I still get what I call nut mail from people that want to explain to me why this theorem is wrong. But uh, never mind that. But uh, the reason I, I mentioned the topic of infinity, though, is because the, I was trying to, Cantor had left open this question of uh, there's an other sizes of infinity, and it wasn't exactly clear where the size of the continuum fit in relative. There's the smallest infinity, aleph null, and then there's a, the next one would be aleph one. And we know the continuum is larger than aleph null, but is it equal to aleph one? And we don't know. And that's Cantor's continuum problem. So I went to Heidelberg, and my goal, I read all of Cantor's original papers in German. For some reason, they've never been translated, his philosophical papers. And uh, I was hoping to make some progress on Cantor's continuum problem. And after about six months, I sort of realized I really wasn't going to get anywhere, and that it really was not my fate to be a... Uh, a truly great and famous mathematician. You know, I aspired to that, but I could see that was not going to be in the cards. And then I said, well, maybe I should write another novel. And uh, actually, Sylvia was visiting her grandmother in Budapest, and I was alone for a few days. So I started a novel that it was eventually called White Light, or What is Cantor's Continuum Problem? And the, the white light is sort of stands for this mystical illumination. Uh, sometimes people, if they see God, they imagine that you know they're surrounded by blinding white light. And so the novel was written in what I came to call my transreal style. And transreal is a word I made up. It's always good to make up the word to describe your work because then there's no danger of it meaning something that you don't want it to. So. Uh, Transreal meaning, that is, I, I like to sometimes write about things that are sort of, in some sense, autobiographical novels, but add some aspect that kicks it up into science fiction, and that's the trans aspect. And it, it's my feeling that a lot of the things that we use in science fiction are, they could be viewed as objective correlatives for deep, psychic things, like time travel, is in some way a symbol of our desire to go back to the past. It's nostalgia. Or uh, telepathy is in some way correlates the idea of this sort of hope and dream that we have of being perfectly understood by someone, by a friend or by a loved one. And uh, the idea of a uh, intelligent robot is perhaps the idea of being able to take full control of some small aspect of the world. And infinity is, uh, to some extent, the quest for God, the quest for enlightenment. And so it's always, it's always seemed to me that it's a good way to enrich uh, something that would... There's, my sense was there's no point in me trying to write 
a regular autobiographical kind of novel. I mean, it's been done very well, uh, mimetic, realistic fiction. Lots of people can do it. I, Updike, John Updike, one of my favorites, and lots of people since then. And my idea was to write something along these lines, but to have the science fiction in it. And the other side of the coin, what is often, uh, in my opinion, somewhat weak about science fiction novels is very often the characters in it are very flat. They're sort of two-dimensional. These, the kind of characters you see in something like Star Trek, uh, which, you know, it's, it's entertained a lot of people, but the characters, they're not like people that you actually know. They're, they're sort of flat and they're uh, stereotyped. And my sense was that if I'm writing a science fiction novel where the characters are more or less based on people around me, then those characters are going to be more full and more rich, and they're going to say more interesting things. And so uh, in that sense, I saw that the science fiction as enriching mimetic fiction, the mimetic fiction as enriching science fiction. And so White Light was a transreal novel, and it was about, uh, basically it was about my life uh, in upstate New York uh, before we moved to Germany. And... Uh, and about dreaming, about trying to solve the continuum problem. And the way to make this, take this out of the sort of theoretical, I mean, you don't want to write about a guy sitting, being a mathematician, you know, writing things on a piece of paper. That's not very much fun to read about. So I had this guy leave his body and travel up, found this mountain that's as high as the transfinite number system. So you get up to Aleph 0, Aleph 1, Aleph 2, go higher and higher past the continuum. And at the very top is the white light. And when he goes to the white light, uh, then he ends up back on Earth. And uh, so I, I had a lot of fun writing that novel. And uh, it, was, it was pretty well received. Uh, that one I sent off to, uh, I think, Ace Books. And uh, I didn't have an agent at that time. I tried to get an agent, but there was a, they would just write me, they'd charge me $100 to read the book and then write me an insulting letter that the book, <laughs> they weren't going to lower the tone of their agency by mailing the book out. So, it's a, so instead I sent the book directly to Ace Books. And uh, I said beginning writers, if you, you can always find the address of the publishers because they always put it on the back of the title page. And uh, I found a book that was is somewhat similar in tone to White Light. It was a book called Miracle Visitors by Ian Watson, a British science fiction writer. And I sent it to Ace Books, and they, they said, all right, we'll buy it. And uh, so then I was, I was launched. My career was launched. And uh, that was this. I managed to extend my grant because I didn't have another job to go to at that time. I was also... As particularly at that early stages, I was not all that successful as an academic. Uh, it was part of the, my age had to do with it, my age cohort. Sort of before me, a lot of the jobs had been filled up at universities, and there were a lot of people my age, and it was not very easy to find a, a professor's job for people in my generation. And uh, the branch of mathematics I was in was not a popular branch it, uh, I 
because it was the it was mathematical logic, the set theory, the science of the infinite, which uh, many mathematicians think that that's uh, that's not very useful. That there's often more interest in things that have more applicability, things like linear algebra or analysis, things like that. So. Uh, Anyway, the thing was, it wasn't like I had a job to go back to, so we extended our, our stay in Heidelberg for another year. And uh, I mentioned two of the people that we knew in Heidelberg are right here. Uh, nice to see them here, uh, Australians. And uh, anyway, so the second year I wrote a novel called Software. And that uh, was maybe the best known of my, at least of my early novels. And... Uh, Software at that time, this was 19, I guess it was 1979 when I wrote this, software was not at all a well-known word. It was a word I'd seen in the Scientific American, and when they would use it, they'd put it in quotes, you know, the, these instructions for the computer, sometimes called, quote, software, you know. And I thought, well, that's, that's a cool word, you know. And... Uh, then, uh, but and then I had this idea. I'd been reading the philosophy of mathematics and thinking a lot about whether or not already before computers could do anything at all. I mean, the philosophers of mathematics were wondering: Could a computer ever be conscious? Could a computer ever think? So that was a problem I'd been thinking about, and I'd come to the conclusion that it would be possible to evolve an intelligent computer program. There's some technical reasons approved by Kurt Gödel, the great mathematician, that uh, we probably would not be able to, probably no person would be able to sit down and write out a program that as intelligent as themselves. There's some subtle tricks about logic that mean that that's, in some sense, impossible. You sort of can't stand on your own shoulders. You can't, you can't get ahead of yourself, you know. So... But we could get hold of such a program by a process of evolution. You could set up you know, a race of, of machines. And so that my premise in software was that we put a bunch of self-reproducing robots on the moon, and they competed and they evolved. Now, how would robots self-reproduce? Well, they would have factories where they'd build robots. It wouldn't be like the way we self-reproduce, which is more exciting, but they would be... They'd be making chips and making parts and assembling them and competing over who got to get enough parts to make a copy of themselves. And they might possibly, you know, pair up and, you know, combine part of my program and your program. We'll put it on this little chip and we'll have our, our little baby robot. And, uh, and so that, that was a premise. And so then, so that, then I was thinking, well, how do I write about the robots? And then I realized, well, the only way to make it interesting, I'll just write them as if they were people, but people that are sort of weird, but give them the full richness of human personalities. Because uh, one of the, the traps that Hollywood even now will fall into is when they want to show a computer mind, they'll show a face on the wall of some guy who never smiles. And he usually has a British accent. <laughs> and he talks loud, and he does not know about using contractions. <laughs> and it's just, they, they don't have this, because if something is going to be intelligent, it's probably going to be interesting and as quirky like we are. Anyway, so that was software. And that, uh, that was actually, that really became known uh, as a cyberpunk novel. And that was a movement that started... Uh, 
in the early 1980s. The most famous cyberpunk writers, William Gibson, and his novel New Romancer was a, a smash success. Maybe that was 82 or 83. And uh, my novel Software had already come out. And then I wrote a sequel called Wetware. And that was a word, uh, again, that was a word that nobody was using. In fact, some people thought I'd invented the word wetware. Uh, but I, th I had seen it actually in a book by Bruce Sterling. But it was the notion of kind of like software, but the idea, it's kind of what we're getting into these days. We're finally getting around to doing it, is to trying to treat, treat the DNA of a living object as being a program that you could tweak and alter and play with. In that sense, it becomes the wetware of the, uh, of the organism. And uh, in wetware, the robots come back and invade Earth. They find a way to code up their personality and put it into a sperm cell and impregnate a woman, and then she'll have a, a human baby, but who has the personality of the robot? So the robots get even. And they, they're just fighting back and forth, the robots on the moon and the, the humans. And uh, so I had a lot of fun with, with that. And I ended up actually, several years later, I wrote two more of the Ware novels. And uh, they're all going to be reissued this spring uh, in an omnibus volume. There was software, wetware, freeware, and realware. And uh, I was also writing stories to a certain extent. If you're particularly in the science fiction field, one of the virtues of the science fiction field is that it's not it's not impossibly difficult to get a story published in a magazine that a fair number of people will read. Uh, if you're in high literature, either you sell a story to the New Yorker, which is pretty much like, at least in the U.S., it's, it's, it's very hard. You know, it's not very likely that you're going to be able to do it. And then you sort of, then you have to drop down to literary magazines, and there's quite a few of them, but those have extremely small circulations. And in science fiction, there's these science fiction magazines that have decent circulation. At least in those times, they did. This is all, they're all sort of dwindling now. And so it, it was possible to, it's a good way to keep your name out there, is to be selling stories. And uh, by then, we were back in the United States, and uh, I went back to teaching, and uh, at that time, I, Sylvia and I lived in this small town called Lynchburg, Virginia, which was sort of a, in some ways, it was a nice place to live. It was, we had a lot of friends there. In other ways, it was the hometown of the evangelist, Jerry Falwell, some of you may have heard of. And uh, it was somewhat oppressive, very preppy. Uh, and uh, the teaching job I had there wasn't very pleasant. It wasn't a, wasn't a very good place to work. And then, in fact, I, I dropped out of teaching then. I, I had this hope of making it, uh, supporting myself as an author. Uh, one thing I found is that for most writers, the, a writer's career, when you start out, you imagine you're going to write one or two books. You're going to get a huge bestseller. You're going to get the movie deal. You'll be famous and you're done. 
But it turns out it's more like being a subsistence farmer for, for most writers. I mean, you're out there in the field year after year, you know, selling your two or three bales of cotton, and uh, it never really gets easy. Even I mean, writing never gets that much easier. I mean, I have a little more confidence than I used to, but not, you know, never total confidence. On any given book, when I'm about halfway through, I'll think I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm never going to finish. And uh, it was, this is the worst book I've ever written, and I won't be able to sell it. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, you, I mean, you also, I mean, you learn, if you keep writing, you learn to work through that, you know, to just survive that. And uh, the money is not, for, there's this thing called the power law, the inverse power law curve. And uh, it's not like if you line up the, the writers, like the, the most successful, the next most, the next most, the next most. It's not like the, the money curve, it's not a line. It's, a, it's sort of like a hyperbola. I mean, there's a few people, like Stephen King will get, you know, whatever, a lot of money. But, you know, if you go down and, you know, maybe I'm the 50th most famous science fiction writer. And it's not like I'm getting, you know, 100 grand or something because the curve has gone down like that. And that used to bother me when I was younger. But eventually I discovered this is a law of nature. If you look at any system, if you look at the population of cities, there'll be a few really large ones and then lots of little ones, this sort of long tail thing. Or if you look at the... Uh, the heights of mountains, the areas of lakes. It's a, it's a strange law. and The number of links to a website. Anyway, my point is you can have a career as a writer, but it's, it's not necessarily that easy or lucrative. But for some of us, it's just what we want to do. And that's always, I really, I, I don't write because I make a lot of money at it. I, I write because uh, I love to write. And what is it that I like about writing? Well, in a way, it struck me recently, fairly recently, that in a lot of my novels, the story has to do with somebody who's somewhat of a loner, somewhat isolated, working on his own. And he finds a way to leave this world and go to another world. He goes to a parallel world. He gets in a flying saucer and flies to the center of the galaxy. He... Uh, shrinks down into the sub-dimensions, he goes into hyperspace, goes to infinity. It's always, he starts out in ordinary life, he goes somewhere else, has these amazing adventures, then comes back, and I'm, I'm usually prone to giving my books happy endings. You know, he comes back and then somehow he's fixed things. He's saved the world, he's brought back something good. And... Uh, what I realized was that in a trans-real fashion, what I'm really writing about when I do that, I'm actually writing about the process of me writing a novel. Because a novel is my way of leaving the world. I go off and I have this other thought world that I live in for maybe eight months, maybe a year, maybe even two years while I'm writing it. And I, you know, I have there's people that I know there, my imaginary friends, you might say. And, uh, but this whole edifice, and I can build it up, and uh, I like that. Well, I mean, there's things about this world. I love this world. I love nature. I love my family. But there are things about this world that, you know, they're frustrating. You know, you see things in the newspaper that you wish weren't the case. And uh, 
things often don't really go the way you'd like. And it's nice to have another world that's a little bit different, where things are more to your liking or more surprising. So that's... Uh, this summer I was teaching a, a writing workshop to some science fiction, young science fiction writers called the Clarion Workshop. And some of them had this idea that it was a good idea to have their stories peter out and nothing happens at the end and everybody's depressed. And I was telling them, anybody over 20 already knows that life is mostly repetitive and depressing and ends horribly. This is not why people read escape fiction, you know, to, to find this out. They, they know this. And I always think it's better to have more interesting, fun things happen. And uh, again, I'm sort of, I, I, I tend to like having a happy ending better. But um, so, as I say, we were in Lynchburg, and that was a period when I I did try to make it as a, just living off my writing, and could sort of barely squeak along, but we weren't really making, and Sylvia was working, which helped, but uh, after about four years, five years of that, or maybe six years, the uh, the realities, the children were going to need to go to college. We have three children, and uh, they're even going to need braces, and I just really wasn't making very much money. And so then I went back into teaching. But during those that period, uh, that early period, I did, I really wrote quite a bit, and it was, uh, it was a good feeling to sort of learn how to do it. And uh, then we moved to California, and uh, I, for a while there, I was not writing as much. I got a, I'd been a mathematics professor up until that time, and so this was in 1986 when I was 40, we moved to California. And I switched to being a computer science professor. And they didn't mind that I had, didn't have a degree in it because at that point there weren't very many people that had degrees in it. And the department, it was at San Jose State, which is actually in Silicon Valley. It's uh, San Jose's at the bottom of the San Francisco Bay. San Francisco's here and San Jose's down at the bottom. And uh, they had a department of combined mathematics and computer science. And uh, when they hired me, they said, well, why don't you teach computer science for us instead of math? Math. And I said, well, I don't know it. And they said, well, look, you know Cantor's theorem. You know Gödel's theorem. It's easier than that. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. I actually spent 20 years doing that there. And uh, that was very exciting to be sort of riding that wave of the, the developing computer revolution there. And... Uh, it gave me a lot of ideas for science fiction. And uh, one of the things that interested me that I learned was that uh, I'd usually, I'd sort of imagined that computers would only do sort of boring things. They, they wouldn't do, they, you know, could compute the logarithm of a number or uh, draw a, a parabola. You know, that they, they weren't going to do anything funky. And But what, there was this thing that became popular right around uh, 1986, when I went there, was fractals. And there's this very famous fractal called the Mandelbrot set. That probably many of you seen, have seen. It's sort of this, looks a little bit like an insect. It's one of these things where you can use the computer and you can zoom in on it. And there's just all these incalculable levels of really intricate, wild detail. 
And there was this other thing called cellular automata that I got interested in. And they're not so well known, though they should be. But uh, And they, they're, it's, in a way, they're like fractals in that you're seeing complicated patterns. But the thing about cellular automata is they're animated. So you set this computation into motion. It's a little like a lava lamp, maybe, or like a fish tank. And you just have stuff just seething and crawling around and swirling. And uh, it has this whole thing. There's this, I had informally this idea that I called gnarl. Because I, I once heard, we had moved to California and we were at a, a wine festival and some people were roasting a whole hog. And these two surfers go by and they look at it. And one of them says, gnarly, dude. <laughs> so, meaning that he thought the roast hog was, was disgusting or too, too gnarly. And so I, I like that word gnarly. Of course, gnarl is, originally it means like the, the part of a tree where if a tree is very twisted, you'd say that's a gnarled tree. Or the old man's fingers were gnarled with arthritis. Or, uh, But then it could be used in other ways. Like my children would say, never, ever eat anything gnarly. You know, like... Uh, or uh, the surfers would say the waves are gnarly, they're, they're, meaning that they're very complicated. And I like this idea of there being gnarly computations. And so the things that would generate, starting just with these clean little zeros and ones and these simple rules would generate these, these really odd-looking structures. And so that was, uh, while I was teaching at San Jose State, I, I did a lot of work on programs that would generate gnarly graphics and it also, I began to think of that being in some way a literary thing. That was something that I was sort of after in my fiction, was to get things that were gnarly in the sense. And another way to, to describe gnarliness is that um, you can work out a sort of, and this is actually something I'll talk about a little bit on uh, Thursday here as well. But uh, the idea is there's this sort of spectrum of complexity we can have something that's simple, periodic, you know, just going up and down, up and down. And you can have something that's just blown out, like video snow or static. It just It's just completely sort of random. And this is dull because it's, it's, just, it's just smeared. There's nothing there. And the repetitive stuff is dull. But there's this place in between where you get all the interesting things. And living creatures are like that. I mean, the patterns of, of a living plant, you know, they're wonderfully intricate. They're not stereotyped and repetitive. I mean, they're, they're reactive. And they're on the other hand, they're not random. Or even the waves, the ocean. It's, uh, you don't go there and the wa- it's just a completely uniform mixture of air and water. I mean, the waves have certain patterns, but they're certainly not. And they're somewhat periodic, but they're not exactly periodic. And uh, that's also when you're writing fiction. That's the sort of zone where you want to be. You don't want it to be, you don't want it to be experimental in the bad sense of writing, where you're just, you know, it's pretty much unreadable. It's just word salad, but you don't want it to be completely predictable and 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 uh, repetitive. And so um, I sort of took that in into my way of thinking too. The idea of computer science like mathematics and like science fiction. In computer science, you start with a, a program and then you try to see what comes out of that if you let it run. And the interesting thing, you can sort of prove that it's impossible. 
in some sense, to predict in any easy way what a given set of uh, program will generate. There's this famous thing having to do with what they call Turing's halting problem, and it's formally impossible to predict in advance what a program will do. In the same sense, um, mathematics, you can have some axioms, and you can't predict in advance what you can prove. You sort of just have to wait and work on it. And that's also the case with fiction. You start, <laughs> it's always, although I, I try to write plot outlines for my books, and I do write them, but I've, I've lear long learned that <laughs> the outline is always going to be inaccurate because there's really no way to predict what you're going to be doing in about six months because you sort of have to work through all the intermediate steps, and it's something organic that grows. So... Um, at this point, I've written about 30 books, and uh, I think 18 of them have been science fiction novels and a historical novel, and I've written some nonfiction books about science. And uh, I still like doing it. I generally, um, if possible, I like to write every day, although I don't, I, sometimes I get tired of writing, and then I don't write that day. And uh, I've also found it's not like you can write nine to five. It's like I'll write for a few hours. Then if I get something that looks good, I'll print it out and then go to a cafe maybe and mark it up and uh, look it over, hand correct it. Then maybe type the changes in and then do another cycle like that. Uh, I've also found it's useful rather than just having the document for the novel I'm working on, I'll usually have a, a document that I call the notes document. And at this point, my notes document usually ends up being twice as long as the novel. But what I can do when I don't have the confidence or the energy or the conviction to actually write something in the novel, I could go and write in the notes document. I can bellyache about how hard it is to be a writer or how how bad my book is, or I can I can talk about ideas that I might have that I would like to put in later on and play with ideas. And if I cut something out of the novel, I can always stick it into my notes document so then I don't it's not lost to history, you know. And then when I'm done, I publish the novel and I turn the notes into a PDF document that I post online. And it's read by dozens of people. <laughs> but someday, yeah. Uh, and uh, so at this point, uh, maybe I've talked almost long enough now. Um, I don't have too much more to say. I just would say I have found it very rewarding being a writer. It's It gives me insight into myself, certainly, into people around me. It helps me understand the world better. Uh, it's... Uh, very pleasant. I enjoy all the different levels of it. I like playing with the words and you know, choosing the right word. I like imagining the scene. I like bringing it into life. It's nice to get email from people that have enjoyed the books and uh, to get paid a little bit. So it's uh, it's been a nice career and really it's worked out. When I was young, I, I didn't really imagine I would be able to, to write and publish so many books. And it's uh, things have really worked out better than I and I'd hoped, so I'm, I'm grateful that it's gone so well. And uh, thanks again for coming out.
Sure, back there. Oh, uh, Hollywood. Yes, uh, I've gotten close. There's a novel software was under option by Phoenix Pictures, which is a fairly large company in Hollywood, for 10 years. And what that meant that's under option was every year they would pay me a certain amount of money, between 10000 and 20000 a year, for the right to be the, to the sole right to purchase the book for making a movie. But they don't actually do the full purchase until they have a script that they think they can film. And so over those 10 years, they wrote 10 different versions of the script. And those screenwriters actually were paid more than I was. Uh, uh, they might get $100,000 for writing the script. So they, they spent about a million dollars on scripts. And the scripts, uh, <laughs> there never was one that they felt was to their liking. The scripts, <laughs> by the end, as you can imagine, didn't necessarily have a close relationship to my book. Uh, I mean, my characters are somewhat countercultural, but by the end, the main characters were a general and a colonel <laughs> in the Space Navy. And uh, when things, I realized things were really going south, I went to see the producer and he, you know, they always want to be creative, you know, and they want to contribute something. So he says, I've got it. Instead of these robots on the moon, let's have a big army base there. And instead of it being the Pentagon, it can be the Octagon. <laughs> 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 so, it's, uh, and it, so it didn't work out. And then I wrote another novel called Master of Space and Time. That's sort of a funny book. It's like a Three Wishes story about these two Jlubi uh, scientists. That's sort of a traditional form in science fiction. You'll have two scientists, they're sort of crazy losers, and but mad inventors. And they, f they manage to find this way to, it's, they find this trick for making wishes where anything they want will happen. And like any story, this, you can only do it three times. That's sort of the trish. Science fiction is also very close to fairy tales. A lot of the, the, the tropes are the same. And that was uh, Michel Gondry, who's a very a director I admire very much, who made The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He had that under option for about five years. And uh, he had a, a good cast of actors he was going to put in it. But uh, then at some point, he couldn't get the producers to give him uh, enough money to make the movie. And so that didn't work out. So... Uh, I haven't heard anything from Hollywood lately. Well, there was another guy, people, they had option on freeware. And there I got a little discouraged when I meet with the guy, their money guy, and he tells me this long story about he knows other universes are real because he bought a used car that there was a fog light that hadn't been there when he bought it. And then after a week later, he saw the fog light on the car. and He said he knew it had come from an alternate reality. I mean, that's so much more likely than that he hadn't noticed the fog light, but I don't know. So anyway, that didn't work out. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe someday uh, they will make a movie from one of my books, but it's a, it's a strange process, Hollywood. It's sort of, it's not like anything I can do will make it happen or not happen. It's more or less, it's completely out of my hands.
wasn't suggesting that it was a good thing. I was, my question was going to be whether or not the writing was a different thing for you if you were writing for the screen as opposed to... Uh, oh, writing for the screen. Well, it is very different. Um, I've never done any work as a screenwriter. I have some friends who've done it. And they're, they're wealthy men, but they're bitter and unhappy because... And they they write these things, and I have one friend. He's he's you know a fairly successful writer, screenwriter, but he's been doing it all these years, and he's only had I think two movies made using his script. And even when they do use your script, uh, they usually let other people work on it, and it tends to not be totally true to your work. Uh, so it's a it takes a I don't know it takes a certain a certain I don't know, a certain kind of personality to be able to stand that. And uh, it's not something that I don't think I would be very happy with doing. It's a very slow way of getting ideas out there. In as you say, some said it like spending 10 years giving birth to a baby and then watching as its head is smashed against. Well, in a way, but actually screenwriters, they know what's going to happen to their scripts. So they don't actually work on their script very long. Usually they'll write the script in a couple of weeks. And there's not very many words. Because they know people are just going to be, you know, hacking it and and scribbling on it. So they learn not to polish it to the degree that I would polish a novel. So in some ways there's they learn to work with it. Yeah? You said you had the idea I think near, near, near when you started writing that um, that um, you didn't think that machines were uh, that artificial intelligence was going to um, be I think that you said it's superior to, to human mm-hmm. intelligence there would be a place for us and that's still the case in the novel I'm reading now post simulator is still 20 or 30 years of computing hasn't changed your view about that well it's it's an interesting issue um, the whole question of artificial intelligence, will machines ever be as smart as we are? And uh, it's one type of argument where you simply look at the, what you might call the hardware capacity of your brain, how many neurons it has, uh, how much information each neuron can store, how quickly they can sort of switch things on and off. And at least on the surface, it looks as if Oh, maybe in at least probably not more than 50 years, we would be able to build a desktop computer that would have, in principle, the the hardware ability of a human brain. Uh, although it could be there's things that we're overlooking. Maybe the the biochemical aspects of the brain are really coding a lot more information than we realize. But the catch is. Uh, when you buy a, a computer, I mean, you can get this, you know, computer with a huge amount of RAM and a hard drive. Unless you have some software on it, it's not going to do anything. So, I mean, we could build this computer with this huge amount of RAM and hard drive, but it won't be emulating a human brain unless we can think of the right kind of program. And that's the catch, is that we we don't even really have a general theory of how to make an intelligent program. Uh, I taught artificial intelligence for a number of years at San Jose State. And I was sort of surprised to learn that it's really just a sort of collection of very specialized tricks. I mean, there's a certain trick for 
playing chess, there's a certain trick for recognizing faces, there's a certain trick for, similar trick for recognizing handwriting, there's tricks for finding paths, but each of them is sort of almost like a special, this special tool that will do this one thing. And we don't have a really good universal theory of how to develop uh, a program that's intelligent in the same way that we are. And uh, it could be, I mean, you never know until after it happens, there could be some big aha insight that we haven't had yet that will really make a difference. Uh, there is sort of, you could say, well, let's just take a brute force approach. And there's sort of two brute forces approach that will get us partly there. And one, there's something called neural nets, which is you make something that's sort of similar to a brain and that you have a bunch of sort of little information nodes and they're all linked to each other. And then you start trying to teach it things and it's kind of evolve, evolve the thing in a way teaching the, the, the software something. And that can get you a certain amount of the way. And another possibility is the thing I talked about in my novel of having competing programs that are doing evolution. And in the 1980s, there was this movement called artificial life, and we were very optimistic about artificial life. And the catch there is human beings evolved over millions of years, and the place they're evolving was the entire surface of the planet Earth. And it's you don't really you can't really crush that down into your desktop and accomplish that in a year or two. And so it's sometimes it's just it's hard to sometimes grasp how slow and big evolution is and in the real world. And we can get these tinker toy little evolutions. We can dissolve evolve like little an ant a fake ant colony of ants that can solve a maze. We think oh we're getting there, but from there to being able to understand human speech is a big step. So, um, but I do think, I think within a century, I don't think it's going to happen as fast as, as people sometimes imagine. I think within a century, we would have programs that would be fairly much as if they were intelligent. Have we got a century? Have we got a century? Oh, I think, I think, why not? It's, people are actually pretty hard to kill. <laughs> so, I mean, it's going to get hotter. Uh, but uh, the nuclear threat isn't as bad as it used to be and uh, at least it doesn't seem that way these days but um, yeah I I think I don't think we're going to destroy the earth within the next hundred years Uh, sometimes maybe we I don't know it's so there's a lot of things that that the society needs to do but uh I'm not going to get into all of that.